0: an 80s all over exclusive interview with the star of valley girl better off dead and pee-wee's big adventure e.g daily and now your hosts true mcweeney and scott weinberg Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another very special Patreon bonus episode of 80s All Over. Uh, My name is Drew McQueenie.
1: And I am Scott Weinberg, the co-host of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a genuine
0: pleasure to have Elizabeth Daly, E.G. Daly with us. You probably know her best, depending on which era you are from either as a live-action mainstay in the 80s or as the voice of your childhood. So uh, it is going to be a delightful conversation. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Nice to talk to you.
0: For somebody my age, I, I was uh, 10 in 1980, so I, I always think you, you look at the group of people that is about 5 or 10 years older than you, that's the aspirational age for you. So these high school uh, movies in the 80s, Oh my God, it was like programming for me. Like it just was such an aspirational and interesting thing. And um, in particular, seeing L.A., I think of Valley Girl when I think of L.A. First, and when I moved to Los Angeles, man, did it feel like Valley Girl. And that film in particular has an authenticity. It feels like it is what it felt like at that moment.
2: Yeah, I think it really was. It really, it really was. If there was the grungy scene, and then there were the Valley Girl kids, and. It definitely has not It has a feeling about it, L.A. and the Valley. There's definitely a feeling about it.
0: Martha Coolidge has such a great sense of not just the young cast, but the adults in that film are, are so well played. Um, can you talk about her as a filmmaker? Because I love Coolidge's voice, and I think she was great with ensembles. She always feels like she makes room for the actors.
2: Well, she's definitely an actor's director. I think she was really heavily into Meisner technique. Um, a lot of the actors she worked with were really skilled actors she was very intuitive as an actor's director, very deep connected woman. Like she wasn't a very shallow kind of lady anyway. She was very deep. And so I think she had a real big heart for all of those characters in Valley Girl, as well as the vision for that movie. I mean, although none of us knew it was going to blow up like it did. And I, but I think she was just being led by something because her instincts were so good as far as like everything, as far as the way she went about casting. And we were all mm-hmm. just like, local people who walked in that office and read and she sort of matched us up and she took a risk with Nick Cage. She had a real feeling about him, which was really incredible because he was so interesting. And I think she just was a very strong woman and didn't allow a lot of people to, to discourage her from her vision, which is why that movie came out so well. And she said like, even like putting together that soundtrack you know, that soundtrack is like monumental.
0: Oh, you know? it's the best.
2: It's monu- I'm actually going to sing uh, A Million Miles Away at the Whiskey next Tuesday. They do like a, a all star jam night. And they were like, oh, come and sing, you know, a song at the, but it's songs from movies. And I picked A Million Miles Away because I've always just thought that song was so incredible from that. That's awesome. That that- so again, that's all just more. Credit to Martha Cool as for being such a brilliant lady and listening to her instincts about what was going to work versus what everybody was trying to make her do. She just followed herself. And that's why I think it was such a success.
1: What a joy it is to watch through the 80s and see how many cult movies an actor from the 80s would be happy to be in two or three uh, of these films that are still beloved. And it must feel great that you can look at your list and say, Street to Fire, people still love it. Fandango, definite loyal following. Valley Girl, Better Off Dead, Pee Wee. Of course, you had good taste in
2: scripts. (laughs) To be honest, a lot of it was just people were offering things to me, and I just wanted to be busy working. You know, a lot of it was I just people knew how to cast me, and people would call me and just say, "Do you want to do this role? Do you want to do that role?" Or once in a while, I would read for them. But I think I was just really down for working. I mean, I like doing what I do, and and I enjoy doing different characters and so for me it really wasn't that I had great tastes in scripts it was really just that I was rolling with the punches
0: I also think you managed to not get boxed in the way a, a lot of young actors very quickly get put into you can do this or you can do that and I, I think you were cast in a wide range of young roles so it was never she plays only this
2: yeah that to me was um, something I never really had a lot of desire to be was this one-note Sally. I mean, I I love doing characters. I love changing my looks and changing my voice and changing my wardrobe. And to me, that is like the magic of the whole thing is just changing everything up and getting to be somebody different and far different than who I am every day. And so my life, this is so much more interesting because I've gotten to live like at these time capsules of different people. And like recently... I did do the Rob Zombie sex head and Candy from Devil's Rejects, but both of those movies, the characters were very specific and Rob had very specific like wardrobe for me and and style. They were very stylized. And to me, like looking at photographs and thinking, oh, my God, I get to live in a different realm all the time. I get to go (laughs) live in different people time capsules and then I have them documented and it's just, it's really a blast for me.
0: One of the things that this show does, we, um, the regular episodes, we review every film from the decade. We are literally month by month going by and talking about everything for me. You know, I felt like I had seen most of it the first time, but there's definitely stuff I'm discovering and things that I, I hope people, we'll pick up and see again that they maybe didn't see the first time or didn't know about. One of the ones that I really loved that we saw on the show and reviewed was ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains man. Does that film hold up?
2: Oh, that's funny because I, again, I don't know how many people got to see that movie. That was in a very, very iconic hip little film. Yeah. It wasn't even a little film. It was a big film. I mean, it had like, I think I remember um, being in Canada, filming that movie with, uh, Laura Dern who was probably only 14 or 15 and Diane Lane who again was also around the same age and you know the Plimps, I think it was Paul Cook and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and mm-hmm. I mean it was like there we were in Canada filming this strangest movie that was so um hip as far as like they were really going for the punk thing and gunked hair and I mean it was such a hip movie and um Again, I don't know how many people got to see that film either. I just know that it was a really cool experience. And at the time, it was like I was on a roll of just going from movie to movie. But that one really stood out as far as experiencing that period in that movie.
0: I discovered Punk because of Repo Man. That was the film that kind of turned me on to, oh, this is happening out there. Okay. I was living in, I think, Tampa at the time. and. A lot of these movies, the reason they are so beloved or they hold such a a really strong spot in people's hearts is because they were our connection to things that uh, somewhere else in the country you didn't have a connection to. And Fabulous Stains, it still feels very hip and uh, has an attitude that feels fresh. I, I think that's a really timeless movie.
2: Yeah, it really is. And it's also like coming back. Like now you're starting to see a lot of the, you know, I just went to a club that was, it was bizarre, but it was like, Oh my God, it's all just coming right back. You know, my family was renowned. My mom owned the anti club, which is a really popular punk club in the eighties. Um, and we had b- bands like black flag and X scene and, you know, oh, man. It, it was a very hip time period. And we ran this little club that my sister booked the bands for, and I, I sang at occasionally and occasionally like celebrity bartended and, you know, it was a very hip scene. So it's kind of been that whole period was kind of in my blood with oh. my family too.
0: Well, it's, and then I look at fabulous Stains, which is not as well known as I wish it was, but Diane Lane in that, oh my God, super iconic and uh, just attitude to despair. Like she really owns that stage. Which brings us to Streets of Fire, which that had to be a crazy experience. I've heard about what the Universal lot was like and them covering it to turn it into night. And, you know, Walter Hill, I'm fascinated by just as an artist on his own. Let's talk about that experience, because that sounds like it was a wild set to even be on.
2: That was actually a very massive project. And Walter Hill was really known for these kind of action packed kind of man, you know, movies you know or this kind of like I don't know it was action packed it was just there was something about what Walter did that really did swagger that, yeah to that movie and I actually think I passed on that movie at first they had wanted me to do that little role of baby doll and I kind of was in this mode of like I don't want to do that I want to do something more significant I want mm-hmm. to do, I want my character to matter more I don't want to just be a little butterfly flitting around doing nothing in this movie they said, no, 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 she's going to be, we're going to have her throughout, and Baby Doll end up being, they expanded it, and and they actually wrote in a little thing for me because of that. They wrote in that whole little scene where I talked about songwriting, and that whole thing was just a little piece they added into that movie because I had talked to Walter Hill and Joel Silver, the producer, and I was like, I don't want to be just a, a body in a scene. Like, I don't want that. And I thought I was going to get fired, actually, because I, I was in a place in my in the movies that I had done where I really mattered to me that I was doing things that mattered and that I wasn't just like the boobs number three in that scene or, you know, the blonde in that scene. I didn't want to do any of that. And so they, I thought I was going to get fired from that movie. I was quite nervous actually. And, and quite the opposite. They were like, go in your trailer. And I walked in my trailer and there was, uh, some sides there and they had added this little scene that meant a lot to me. You know, it meant a lot to me. It was something I could connect to. And I got to have this little scene with Diane that was special. And I already had a friendship with Diane from doing Fabulous Stage, So I'd known her for so many years. And then we went back and did that movie. And then the other thing that was really interesting about Streets of Fire was I booked another movie, right, while I was on contract for Streets of Fire. Because Streets of Fire went on for a long time. It was months and months and months. And then I had booked a movie called Fandango with Kevin Costner, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was one of his first big movies. And then they were gracious enough to let me leave, um, you know, while I was under contract for that movie to go off and do Fandango in Texas. It just turned out to be a really good experience. And even though at the beginning I was kind of like, I don't want to do this, you know, and I'm really glad I did because it was a very iconic film. And Michael Paré is a friend of mine since then. And we do a lot of th- conventions together. Uh, so it's nice you know connecting with him over the years and and Diane Lane you know I I run into once in a while but it was a really cool project to be part of another iconic piece
0: well you mentioned Fandango and I just rewatched that one uh, last week and uh, Kevin Reynolds had so much raw talent and it's so clear why Spielberg liked him as a filmmaker because there's a lot of Spielberg in there there's that scene where they're trying to get the uh, the car to go behind the train—that is a Spielberg scene, and I love. And it reminds me of the early stuff where Spielberg loves small town America and he just loved people. I really like the scene that you guys are in. I, those girls are great, and they they are so real, small town. And the idea that these guys blow through and they're just hey for one afternoon, this is exciting and interesting and. it's really evocative and it captures it very, very well.
2: Yeah, a little piece of small town and young men. And I think a lot of the girls in that movie, I think they did cast a lot of locals at the time, just to really keep an essence of that. I mean, I was shipped in from L.A., but um, I think the girl that I worked with in my scene was a local.
0: And then it's that beautiful scene in the cemetery, which is just, it takes, the movie has a lot of moments where it just stops to breathe. And that seems like that's something that we don't see a lot of now. But I love that moment in the cemetery where you guys just play for a little while.
2: Yeah. It was actually um, scary too, because they were, there was that one point where there was a lot of firecrackers <laughs> going off and it was actually scary, quite scary. There were, there were moments where we had to run through like bombs of fireworks and, and it was scary. And I remember doing a scene with Chad Nelson by a tombstone and there were bombs going off with fireworks and, I remember it just being, like, movie making is fun, and it's also scary sometimes. Like, it's like pretend, but it really isn't pretend. So sometimes people forget, oh, that's a real firework. It's not a pretend movie firework. Like, you could get hurt. Yeah. (laughs) But um, it was a really special little movie. And just down to, the like, the Dairy Queens and the little things we got to do in the hotels and you know, the little funky motels we stayed in while we were shooting. I mean, all of it just added. And then we would go to local bars while we were shooting, like, with Kevin Reynolds, the director, and Kevin Costner, and, you know, the cast or crew, or whatever. We just—you we you were together in these very tiny towns, like Marfa, Texas, and— you know, it was really cool. It was a really good experience.
0: Before we move on to what is clearly one of the biggest titles of the '80s, um, let's go back because I figure, yeah, with especially when you're a young actor, you're learning on everything that you do. So, let's just real quick on some of the some of these smaller titles. What do you remember, or what did you learn on One Dark Night?
2: The Mausoleum movie. Mm-hmm. What did I learn? I think I remember that was just very much um, an ensemble kind of vibe. Like I remember that I was with these other girls clearly. And it was about the compatibility of all of us and the differences of all of us and, and how that worked. And it was interesting to see how they cast all of us. We were all kind of different. There was like this girl, Robin and I, and then this other girl. And I just remember the diversity factor of like, just, um, just how they put girls together, different personalities, different energies. And and then you're instantly got to be best friends. And so I think that movie was, was about ensemble and ensemble vibe. And, and it was a blast. It was a blast doing that movie.
0: I'm fond of this film. It's a odd little movie. How about The Escape Artist?
2: Oh, that was really cool. Fred Roots produced it. and
0: That was when Zoetrope was really trying to get up and running as a, like a full studio.
2: Yeah, the Francis Ford Coppola era. That was amazing. I mean, that was an incredible... I remember what I thought was so massively incredible about that was it was... Griffin O'Neill and I, and he was just a little boy at the time. I was a little young girl. I was thinking I was 18. And then there was like Raul Julia and Desi Arnaz Sr. and Terry Garr. And, oh gosh, it was such an incredible cast. Um, and, and again, I don't know why, but I seem to always remember the people and the locations. And that was somewhere like Cleveland, Ohio, where we filmed that. And then they had this really beautiful set with this big water tank and... And I remember it just having such a really interesting vintage feel about it, that movie, and getting to be this little girl with this boy and this this magical, weird, strange element. And it was just a really, I mean, that's just what's so cool about making movies is they're like little time capsules. And I've gotten to be in so many cool time capsules. And that's why I think it's my favorite thing to do is period pieces and and change locations. And Change the way I look and change my wardrobe, and so Escape Artist was just a magical experience getting to work with such an iconic cast.
0: So let's talk about Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I know when I saw it, I was I, I went to the theater one afternoon, and I'd seen the HBO special, so I I knew the character, and I knew him from the the Cheech and Chong movies. He was a guy that would pop up, and I always enjoyed him. But I had really no idea what I was walking into. And I would rank that in my top 10 surprise, delightful experiences in a theater where you come out the other side going, I had no idea I loved Pee Wee Herman like that.
2: Who doesn't love like little kid type stuff? It's like it's in us. It's, it's how we were. Everybody loves the child element of life, like funny, like cereal machines and speckled dogs and. Who doesn't love that, you know, and yeah. he doesn't have that ingrained in them. And so when you get older, we're supposed to be adults and act like that's that's not our part of us anymore. But, you know, everybody that knows me knows I'm very much like a little kid and I still act like a kid. And, and sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm not. And that's what was so beautiful about Pew's the Adventure was it was like reliving some kid stuff. But as an adult that was, you know, chiseled for adults. It's pretty cool.
1: One thing uh, I would love to ask anybody who worked on Pee Wee's Big Adventure is when you were on that set, did you have an inkling that it was going to be something special? Or did you think, ooh, this this might turn out to be just a weird misfire that nobody bothers with? Or did you know that it was going to be unique and special?
2: I really didn't know anything. I mean, I really just, I had done so many movies that I just would go show up on the set and just have fun and just, you know, enjoy the process. But I mean, you really can't tell. Like, Valley Girl was a really small, independent, low-budget feature. We had no idea it was going to blow up and be iconic. And iconic decades later. And Wee's was... I knew that it was fun and it was cool and what a great concept. And I knew that they were putting money behind it. And they had a lot of high hopes for the director and for Paul Rubens. And so you kind of see little glimpses, but you really don't really ever know. Because I've done big movies that didn't happen.
0: Well, just just looking at how confident Burton was as a filmmaker, I hear him talk about the experience like something where he he was very worried about whether or not he was going to get his ideas across. Did he feel to you like a director who had a very firm vision of what it was he was trying to do?
2: Oh, very, very specific and very focused, like a mad scientist on a mission. Very detailed, even with the actors and the style of the acting, I felt like it was different than some other directors. I felt like he was very clear about how he wanted everything. Like Rob Zombie directs, and he's very into you just go doing your thing. And then he might suggest some things, but he's pretty loose. He kind of casts people because he knows what they do, and then mm-hmm. he, lets you, he lets you run. Tim Burton felt very specific to me, which is also very freeing because, yeah. you know, as opposed to if you're given so much free space, you're, you don't have anything specific to play with. So kind of it works both ways. But he, he was brilliant. I mean, you could see that he was brilliant then. And that was his first really big movie. You know.
0: I know that Paul came out of the uh, the background of working with the Groundlings. And so many of the uh, Cheech and Chong films pulled from that Groundling talent pool. And I, I know that Paul's specials did the same thing. And, you know, John Paragon and those guys. Did you have like specific comedy improv backgrounds or, or was it just they found you in in film through the casting process because uh, you fit so beautifully into that world?
2: I think I had the comedy gene in myself, but I had more of the quirky, character ability to just be a goofball um, in me just naturally. And I think that led to me not being so Hollywood and so worried about what people think and looking perfect. And I could look like this kind of quirky little girl and look kind of like a real person. And I think that's what they wanted. Like, I was the girl that people run after me still to this day and are like, oh, my God, did we go to high school together? I know you. And I'm like, (laughs) "Uh, I don't know. And then they realize afterward, oh, my God, you were in Friends or "You you were in Dottie, you were Dottie or you were in Valley Girl. Like, they think I'm their friend from high school. Um, Which is, I think, why I was cast a lot because I had that kind of energy about me that was pretty connected and good time girl, but also like real and not too separate from everybody else. I was accessible and I think that's what worked
0: for me. That year, you were also in Better Off Dead. And I, I look at Savage Steve Holland and I look at Tim Burton, and I think both of them have such interesting and particular comedy brains. And yet, Burton became Burton. Holland did not pop the same way. I, I think uh, that summer, they both felt equally inventive to me as a viewer. It, it must have been really interesting to see both those guys working at that point where they're both kind of establishing who they were.
2: Yeah, and that's a good analogy because Savage Steve is very is also like similar in that he's a mad scientist. He's very fun and quirky and he is unbelievably talented and genius. And his genius is like spreads out into animation and and just quirky. You know, he's just a quirky dude. Yeah, who knows why? I mean, he went off and he's directed TV and he's directed other things, but you know, who knows why? Tim Burton became the infamous Tim Burton, all those massive features and why Savage Steve went off and, you know, directed some TV and, and some animation. And, and I, you know, it's a question I always wonder, like what choices do people make? Or is it subconscious that they don't want that kind of,
0: there are careers that I love dearly that I'm fascinated by that, you know, I, I look forward to talking to people or asking the question about, you know, the, the choices that were made. I am i I'm a fan of Andrew Fleming. And I think Bad Dreams might be the least Andrew Fleming-y, Andrew Fleming film. It's so surprising in his filmography, considering how he's got this really quick wit, and a lot of his stuff has this attitude to it. And Bad Dreams is a pretty serious horror film.
2: Yeah. It's a strange little, it's a strange little movie.
0: And Richard Lynch is an intense presence. I am I, fascinated by Richard Lynch in general.
2: Oh my God, yeah. It was dark. I mean, it was just a very dark piece. You know, um, it was dark. I mean, the subject was dark. I think the character that I got to play was very dark. She was very mentally disturbed, you know, vulnerable.
1: I remember thinking that was a stretch. I remember seeing Bad Dreams and going, gosh, she's usually so upbeat. And this is a real change for her, uh, acting-wise. Yeah,
0: it's grim stuff.
2: Yeah, I love that, though. I love that. Um, Yeah, for me, it was, just again, it was another chance to be in the time capsule of a person that, was that was in a dark, deep, weird place. And also in living out this strange life, right. That I was, that I was getting to be in. And I remember like having to be dipped in this cold, weird lake. It was actually cold and weird and frightening. (laughs) So yeah, it was, it was a strange one. That was a strange little movie, but it was almost like I was lost in the weirdness of that movie because it was like, it was a strange one for me, but I
1: enjoyed it. I'm a huge like Drew. I'm a huge horror fan, and I haven't seen it since probably ninety ninety one. And I remember liking it, but not really remembering much about it. But I look forward to uh, to revisiting it. That you closed out the eighties with a film that I remember back in the day, and I don't want to speak for Drew, but. We, we liked this movie a lot back in the day. Uh, well,
0: there, was a, there was a sub-genre, wasn't there, of the Patrick Dempsey and older women? There, there was like four or five movies yeah, where Patrick yeah. Dempsey suddenly became that guy. And uh, yeah, this was one of the ones that I definitely remember.
1: What about Lover Boy? Yeah.
2: Yeah, the pizza movie. The Pizza Boy movie, right? Yeah, he was another one of those actors that you were hearing like, oh, he's going to blow up. I take in whenever I do a movie, like the energy of what's happening with the people in it and and why they're casting certain people and why they have certain directors. And I remember thinking, they've got a lot of high hopes for this, this guy, Patrick, and he was extremely talented. I, I played a strange little, like secretary, kind of a squirmy little secretary. And again, that was another movie that I think I didn't even know if I wanted that role, because I didn't understand the role, really. I was like, I don't know, why are they casting me? Like, Why do they want me for this role? Like I just didn't understand. I think it was that that role. I remember booking it, and I got uh, I don't know if I want to do that. And then I ended up doing it because I, you know, I thought, oh, just challenge myself to figure out what about this character would be a fun character to play.
0: Now, is it ever about a filmmaker? Do you ever because that's Joan Micklin Silver, who I'm I like her work quite a bit. I really like chilly scenes of winter, and I think she's interesting. Is is it ever for you a matter of even if the role maybe on the page wasn't there yet if you like the filmmaker, would you take that chance?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because you do want to think about the quality people that's usually the first thing I say. Like when I first got cast, um when they cast me they asked me if I wanted to do Devil's Rejects, I walked into my agency that day and they were like, oh, we just got an offer for you to do this movie. And I didn't know anything about it. I just said, well like, can I see the sides and can I see the scene and the stuff in the material? And I remember it was really fun. Like the material was really out there, like almost crazy out there. And uh, I love that kind of stuff. And then I remember, can you show up on the set today? And then it was like, well, who's doing this? Who's working on this? And then it was like, actually, in that particular movie, I just love the craziness of the, the writing, which was Rob Zombie. Yeah. But um, usually, yeah, you do want to take into consideration the people you're going to be working with the directors, the production team, the other actors. You know, sometimes magic happens when you put all those things together and you have to see the big picture. And so I always try to really um, be open, even though there are times where I like I'm like, ah, I don't really like this role. I don't really want this. I don't feel a desire to do this role. Like, it's not that exciting to me. Like when I get a guest star on a regular show where they just want me to be like some generic lady. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Hire somebody, yeah. well, hire that- somebody else. Hire, don't hire me for
1: this. That that represents your uh, 80s film output. I love that we've covered pretty much everything. But, I mean, our listeners and your fans would probably be very disappointed, even though it doesn't really qualify in the 80s. If we didn't cover part of your voice work career, it's fascinating. I don't know if most people even remember this. They should that you did the voice of Babe. For the
0: one that I love, that is, that is the Babe movie that really rings my bell.
1: Uh, you play Tommy Pickles in Rugrats. You play Buttercup in Powerpuff Girls. Uh, and I wonder if people, are, like, I'm fascinated by transitions. If somebody moves from uh, film to TV or TV to film. So you were always uh, on screen as a film and TV actor. But now you're doing a ton of voice work. And did you just one day realize, wow, this is, I love this. And I could just do th- just this. I think
2: I just started getting these roles and started doing them. And I really just try to see what the next thing is. Like I try not to control it all and just see like, okay, what's next in my path. And animation just started coming faster and faster and so prolific. I was kind of welcoming it. And at the time it sort of worked perfectly for my life, for my personal life because I was having children and it was the job that I could go do and not have to leave my children for a week at a time to be on location. There's a long period of time where I didn't want to get any movies or jobs where I had to leave my children because I didn't want to be that mom that was gone all the time. I really felt that I wanted to be a hands-on mom. And so voiceover just sort of came to me at, at the perfect time. I couldn't have planned it better. And It wasn't that I didn't want to do movies and I was like, oh, this is better. I like this better. Is that it was also expanding on what I could do as an actor, which was now I would go from playing all these different characters to where I could actually be a horseshoes voice or a a balls voice or a little box voice or a little stuffed toy or like it expanded into such a different realm to where now it expanded beyond the body and I could just be any kind of voice. So it really challenged my ability to do other kinds of character roles. And that to me was really fun, you know, to get to play a little kid when I was a grown adult, to get a to penguin, play a, a, penguin <laughs> a boy, a pig. Like, I mean, that to me was just like, it was just an expansion of more, you know, and it just was working perfectly for my personal life. But then I missed doing on camera. So then I would go off and do some on camera here and there. But it did slow down a little bit, but um, I'm actually feeling a desire again to do more on camera, which has just been kicking into me lately, so that's something I want to focus more on again, is is doing a lot more um, interesting roles on camera, at this being a
1: little older and... One of our mutual friends is casting a film, Uh, Diane Franklin's daughter uh, apparently is directing a film, so maybe... She's got a role for you in that.
2: Oh, that's sweet. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, we want to we thank Diane Franklin, Drew and I, of course, for uh, making this introduction. We did an interview with her a few weeks ago. And when we were done, she said, oh, I can definitely put you in touch with Elizabeth. And Drew and I went, jaw hit the floor like in a cartoon.
2: Aww, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, she's a doll. I love her. She's great. Such a great uh- girl. And talented actress, like a really talented
1: actress. She told us this great story about how she almost got cast in Amadeus, and Drew and I felt heartbroken, and then she followed it up with, but if I had gotten Amadeus, I wouldn't have met my future husband a month later. And we went, oh, okay, and we felt great. (laughs) Yeah, I
2: mean, you never know why the universe does what it does and gives you certain things and doesn't give you certain things. It's like there's a plan, and, and sometimes it's hard. Like my kids are at that age where they get frustrated, and they don't see the big picture. But, you know, who knows if oh, the reason why you didn't get that job is because you were supposed supposed to be with your spine your soulmate that's gonna be your partner for life and and who know you know, you never know. So it's it's real important to kind of um, to To trust the process, even though sometimes it is frustrating and not knowing why you didn't get a certain thing or got a certain thing
0: i think in general, resilience is the thing that i has defined so much of your career, and seeing you whether it 's pop up on the voice and actually go through that process or seeing the way you 've rebuilt as a and and just had several major stages of your career. It's a real reminder that, you know, ever focusing on the one thing is the end all be all is, is the wrong approach. I, I think you have, you're a real survivor and it's wonderful to see.
2: Thanks. Yeah. I think it's focus on the next indicated thing. You know, it's like, what's next in your path? What's the next um, thing that's lit up saying, Hey, this is what we're going to do now. I mean, it's fun to not know all the time and to kind of be surprised and not to think, you know, because sometimes thinking no keeps you off your path instead of letting yourself be free enough to go, okay, I guess I'm supposed to go this direction today. You know, that's you, the fun
1: thing. Do you, Speaking of, do you have anything new or upcoming that you're working on that you can plug?
2: Well, we did just get a reboot for Rugrats, which I'm real excited about.
1: Nice. Like,
2: doing a, re- a redo for an iconic show like Rugrats is really a
1: monumental. And how wonderful is it that not only uh, our our uh, animation producers loyal to their cast, but boy, the fans are too. So it's not the kind of a, of an industry where you'll just go, "Oh yeah, we're going to reboot these iconic characters, but not with the same actors." That's not going to yeah,
2: happen. Yeah, I don't think they did <laughs> that on Powerpuff Girls, which is a mistake, but I don't think the Power the Rugrats family would do that because it's too tight of a family and you can you can't change the family up without, you know what I mean? People know and they'll be like, "What are you doing?" but no, I don't. I don't think they would go that route. But it's awesome, and and the show's been so powerful, and it'll just continue to grow from there. But so I'm excited about that. They're planning to do a feature film and 26 new episodes. And then I also do a lot of Curious George, the animation show. I do the character Steve, and um, do some voices on Doom. And um, I'm actually um, producing a couple shows. There's a show I'm producing called Maddie and Friends, and I'm one of the lead characters on with the a guy named charles west who created it and he's the creator producer and he's director amazing based out of atlanta so i'm working on that and we're we're in the process of getting that ready to go into production for new episodes and that's fun that's an animated thing too but i'm actually just working on trying to lock in some new on-camera feature roles that i love so i can't tell you yet just what they are i'm just in the process of investigating things and looking into things. Cause I feel like that's the next thing I want to try to do. And musically, I just released a song called so pretty. That was real fun. There's a video you guys can check out. It's called so pretty. And there's a song and it's got this kind of movement attached to it about just beauty and the beauty industry. And I did it for fun. My daughters are in the end of the video and I'm writing, um, a lot of new music for film and TV, which I do a lot of placements for. I mean, I'm just sort of all over the board right now with
1: your IMDb page is is uh, an aspiration for any musician, voice actor, s- screen actor. Uh, it's you've not stopped working since 1979, and uh, it's it's just great to see. You know, people when I mention your name on Twitter, you get 100 people mention Rugrats or 100 people say Dottie or 100 or or 10 people go, I've seen her play in New York and she's amazing. Uh, so it's just it's a real joy to talk to you.
2: Yeah, that too. Like I'm going to be playing at the baked potato, which is in LA on Tuesday. And then I'm going to go do a song at the all-star jam night, the whiskey on Tuesday, the 19th, like the same night I do two different live shows, just go running off and doing songs. I'm going to sing million miles from the Valley Grove movie. I think I've mentioned, but you know, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's really fun to just keep it, keep it rolling. It's just so fun.
0: Thank you so much for being here. It is a uh, it is a pleasure and uh, I'm sure the audience is going to be very excited to hear it. Uh and I'm Sure
2: they follow me on Instagram at real eg daily.
0: I will and I will encourage every filmmaker fan of ours who's listening eg daily is looking for live action work get on that.
2: Yeah, so especially Quentin Tarantino I'd like to make yes. him.
0: Yes. Please.
2: Yeah. So, thanks guys. It was nice talking to you.
0: All right. Um, And as always, thank you guys for listening. Uh, We appreciate all the Patreon support. Um, These special episodes are because you guys have been there since day one, and uh, they they continue to be with great guests. So thanks very much. Thanks for making that possible. We will talk to you soon.
2: All right, guys. Thanks. Bye.